Chapter 22 John Fletcher, Part 1 I do not believe that anyone ever thoughtfully reads his Bible without being struck by the deep beauty of the fourteenth chapter of John's Gospel. I imagine that not many readers of that marvelous chapter fail to notice the wondrous saying of our Lord, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. John 14, 2. The heart that is not excited and stirred up by these words must be cold and dull. This beautiful saying has lately been painfully twisted from its true meaning. Men of whom better things might have been expected have sadly misapplied it and have given it a false meaning. They have dared to say that people of all faiths and creeds will eventually find a place in heaven and that every man shall be saved by the law or sect that he professes so that he is diligent to frame his mind according to that law and the light of nature. They would have us believe that the inhabitants of heaven will be a mixed body that includes heathen idolaters and Muslims as well as Christians, and that it will be made up of members of every religion in the world, no matter how opposite and antagonistic their respective opinions may be. Such theology is miserable indeed. Terrible is the expectancy that it holds out to us of eternity. The harmony in such a heterogeneous assembly would be small indeed. If this belief were true, heaven would be no heaven at all. However, we must not allow human misinterpretations to make us overlook great truths. It is true, in a most comfortable sense, that there are many mansions in our Father's house, and that all who are washed in Christ's blood and renewed by Christ's Spirit will find a place in heaven, even though they may not see eye to eye upon earth. There is room in our Father's house for all who trust the head, no matter how much they may differ on points of minor importance. There is room for Calvinists and room for Armenians, room for Episcopalians and room for Presbyterians, room for Thomas Cranmer and room for John Knox, room for John Bunyan and room for George Herbert, room for Henry Martin and room for Dr. Adoniram Judson, room for Edward Bickersteth and room for Robert McCheney, room for Thomas Chalmers of Edinburgh and room for Daniel Wilson of Calcutta. Yes, thank God our Father's house is a very large one. There is room in it for all who are true-hearted believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thoughts such as these come crowding into my mind as I take up my pen to write an account of the eleventh spiritual hero of the eighteenth century whom I want to introduce to my readers and listeners, John Fletcher, Minister of Madeley. I cannot forget that there was a doctrinal gulf between him and my last hero, Augustus Toplady, and that while one was a Calvinist of Calvinists, the other was an Armenian of Armenians. However, I will never shut my eyes to the fact that Fletcher was a Christian as well as an Armenian. As mistaken as I think he was on some points, he was certainly completely right on others. He was a man of rare grace and a minister of rare usefulness. No account of English religion in the eighteenth century could be considered just, fair, and complete that did not supply some information about John Fletcher of Madeley. John William Fletcher was born at Neon, Switzerland, on September 12, 1729. His real name was de la Fléchière, and he is probably known by that name among his own countrymen to this day. 
In England, however, he was always called Fletcher, and for the sake of convenience I will call him by that name. His father was first an officer in the French army, and afterward a colonel in the militia of his own country. The family is said to have been one of the most respectable in the canton of Bern and a branch of an earldom of Savoy. Even as a boy, Fletcher appears to have been remarkable for his intelligence. At the first school that he attended at Geneva, he won all the prizes and was complimented by the teachers and managers in a very flattering manner. During his residence at Geneva, his biographer records, He allowed himself only a little time for either recreation, refreshment, or rest. After studying hard all day, he would often spend the greater part of the night in writing down whatever had occurred in the course of his reading that seemed worthy of observation. Here he acquired that true classical taste that was so frequently and justly admired by his friends, and which all his deliberate plainness could never entirely conceal. Here also he laid the foundation of that extensive and accurate knowledge for which he was afterward distinguished both in philosophy and theology. From Geneva his father sent him to a small Swiss town called Leutzburg, where he not only acquired the German language, but also diligently continued his former studies. After leaving Leutzburg, he continued some time at home studying the Hebrew language and perfecting his acquaintance with mathematics. Such was Fletcher's early training and education. I ask the listener to pay special attention to it. It supplies one among many proofs that those who call the leaders of the English revival of religion in the eighteenth century poor, ignorant, illiterate fanatics are only exposing their own ignorance. They don't know what they are talking about. In the mere matter of learning, Wesley, Romaine, Berridge, Hervey, Toplady, and Fletcher were second to few men in their day. After young Fletcher's education was completed, his parents hoped that he would immediately turn his attention to the Christian ministry, a profession for which they considered him to be very well suited. In this expectation, however, they were at first terribly disappointed. Partly from a sense of unfitness, and partly from doubts about the doctrine of predestination, John Fletcher announced that he had given up all idea of being ordained, and instead wanted to go into the army. His theological studies were laid aside for the military works of Vauban and Cohorn, and in spite of all the objections of his friends, he seemed determined to become a soldier. This strange determination, however, was frustrated by an extraordinary series of events. The same overruling hand that would not allow Jonah to go to Tarshish, but sent him to Nineveh in spite of himself, was able to prevent the young Swiss student from carrying out his military intentions. At first, it seems, after his parents firmly refused their consent to his entering the army, young Fletcher went away to Lisbon, and like many of his countrymen, offered his services to a foreign flag. At Lisbon, on his offer being accepted, he soon gathered a company of Swiss recruits and obtained passage on board a Portuguese man of war that was about to sail for Brazil. He then wrote to his parents and asked them to send him money, but his request was denied. Unmoved by this, he determined to go without the money as soon as the ship sailed. However, on the morning that he was supposed to go to sea, the servant at breakfast let the kettle fall, scalding Fletcher's leg so severely that he had to stay in bed for a considerable time. In the meantime, the ship sailed for Brazil, and strangely enough, was never heard of again.
Fletcher returned to Switzerland, in no way shaken or deterred by his Lisbon disappointment. Being informed that his uncle, then a colonel in the Dutch service, had obtained a commission for him, he joyfully set out for Flanders. Right at that time, though, peace was reached, and the Continental armies were reduced. His uncle died shortly after, and John Fletcher's expectations were completely frustrated. He gave up all thought of being a soldier. Being now free from business, and all military hopes seemingly completely at an end, young Fletcher thought it would be good to spend a little time in England. He arrived in this country in 1750, almost totally ignorant of the language, and began at once to look for someone who could instruct him in the English language. A boarding school kept by a Mr. Birchall at South Mims, and afterward at Hatfield in Hertfordshire, was recommended to him. Fletcher remained with this gentleman for eighteen months, during which he not only acquired a complete mastery of English, but also became exceedingly popular in his tutor's family, and throughout the neighbourhood, as a bright, friendly, and pleasant man. While staying at Mr. Birchall's boarding school, Mr. Duchamp, a French minister to whom he had been recommended, obtained for him employment as a private tutor in the family of Mr. Hill of Turn Hall in Shropshire. His acceptance of this position in the year 1752, when he was twenty-two years old, was the turning point in his life, and affected his entire path, both spiritually and temporarily, to the very end of his days. Up to this time there is not the slightest evidence that Fletcher knew anything of spiritual and experiential Christianity. As a well-educated man, he was, of course, acquainted with the facts and evidences of Christianity, but he seems to have been completely ignorant of the inward work of the Holy Spirit and of the distinctive doctrines of the gospel of Christ. Happily for him, he seems to have been carefully and morally brought up, and had a good deal of religion of a certain kind when he was a boy. From early in life he was familiar with the letter of Scripture, and to this he traced his preservation from unbelief and from many sins and bad habits into which young men too often fall. Beside this, a succession of providential escapes from death, which his biographers have carefully recorded, undoubtedly had a restraining effect upon him. Nevertheless, there is no reason to think that he really experienced a work of grace in his heart, until he had been some time a resident of Mr. Hill's house. Until this time he had believed in God and feared God somewhat, but he had never felt the love in Christ Jesus shed abroad in his heart by the Holy Spirit. Romans 5, 5. He had never really seen his own sinfulness, nor the preciousness of Christ's atoning blood. The first thing that awakened Fletcher to a proper conviction of his fallen condition was the simple remark of a servant in Mr. Hill's household. This man, entering his room one Sunday evening in order to attend to the fire, found him writing some music. Looking at him with concern, the servant said, Sir, I am sorry to see you so occupied on the Lord's day. At first his pride was stirred up, and he resented hearing a reproof from a servant. Upon reflection, though, he felt that the reproof was just. He put away his music, and from that very hour he became a strict observer of the Lord's day. How true is that word of Solomon, Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. Proverbs 6.23. The next step in John Fletcher's spiritual history was his becoming acquainted with a people called Methodists. He later told John Wesley how this happened in the following words. 
When Mr. Hill went to London to attend Parliament, he took his family and me with him. On one occasion, while they stopped at St. Albans, I walked around town and didn't return until after they had left for London. They had left a horse for me, and I rode after them and caught up with them in the evening. Mr. Hill asked me why I stayed behind. I said, As I was walking, I met with a poor old woman who talked so sweetly of Jesus Christ that I didn't realize how the time passed away. Mrs. Hill said, I will wonder if our tutor does not turn Methodist soon. Methodist, madam, I said, What's that? She replied, The Methodists are a people who do nothing but pray. They are praying all day and all night. Are they? I said. Then by the help of God I will find them out, if they are above ground. I did find them out not long after and was admitted into the society. The third important step in Fletcher's spiritual history was hearing those clergymen who were called Methodists preach about faith. Under the influence of newly awakened feelings, he had begun to strive diligently to make himself acceptable to God by his works. But hearing a sermon one day preached by a clergyman named Green, he became convinced that he did not understand the nature of saving faith. This conviction was only attained through much humiliation of soul. Is it possible, he thought, that I, who have always been considered so religious, who have made divinity my study and received the prize of piety, so called, from a Swiss university for my writings on divine subjects, is it possible that I should still be so ignorant as not to know what faith is? However, the more he examined himself and considered the subject, the more he was convinced of the momentous truth. The more he saw his sinfulness and the entire corruption and depravity of his whole nature, the more his hope of being able to reconcile himself to God by his own works began to die away. He still sought, by the most strict self-discipline, to conquer this evil nature and to bring into his soul a heaven-born peace. However, the more he tried, the more he saw and felt that all his soul was sinful. Like Bunyan's Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, he felt his imminent danger before he saw the way to the wicked gate, yet he didn't know which way to flee. It's not quite clear how long this inward struggle continued in Fletcher's mind. It seems probable that it was at least two years before his soul found peace, he was set at liberty, and his burden rolled away. Evangelists were rare in these days, and there were few people who could help a troubled conscience into the light. Fletcher's diary shows that he went through an immense amount of inward conflict. At one time we find him saying, I almost gave up all hope and nearly resolved to continue in sin and go to hell. Another time he said, If I go to hell, I will serve God even there, and since I cannot be an example of His mercy in heaven, I will be a monument of His justice in hell. If I show forth His glory one way or the other, I am content. Another time he said, I have recovered my ground. I thought Christ died for all, and therefore He died for me. He died to pluck such sinners as I am as brands out of the burning, and since I sincerely desire to be His, He will surely take me. At another time, he wrote, I heard a sermon on justification by faith, but my heart was not moved in the least. I was only still more convinced that I was an unbeliever, that I am not justified by faith, and that until I am, I will never have peace with God. He wrote another time, I have found relief in Mr. Wesley's journal when I heard that we should not build on what we feel, 
but should go to Christ with all our sins and all our hardness of heart. Mental struggles like these are not strange to many of God's people. They are deep waters through which some of the best and holiest saints have had to pass in the beginning of their journey toward heaven. John Bunyan's little book called Grace Abounding is a remarkable account of the inward agony that the author of Pilgrim's Progress had to endure before he found peace. There are many points of resemblance between Bunyan's experience and that of John Fletcher. It is a pleasant thought, however, that sooner or later these painful struggles end in solid peace. The greater the conflict at first, the greater sometimes is the peace at last. The men whom God intends to use most as instruments to do His work are often strengthened for His service by being frequently put into the fire. The truths that we have got hold of by tremendous effort are precisely the truths that we afterward grasp most firmly and proclaim most positively and powerfully. The man who has embraced the doctrine of justification by faith alone through a hand-to-hand fight with Satan and a contest even unto death is precisely the man to preach the doctrine to his fellow men with unction, with demonstration of the Spirit, and with crushing power. This was the experience of that mighty evangelist George Whitefield. This was also the experience of John Fletcher of Madeley. Once he had been set free from the burden of unforgiven sin, and had felt the blessedness of peace with God, we don't need to wonder that Fletcher yearned to tell others of the way to life. Long before he was ordained a minister, he began to speak to others about their souls as he had opportunity. Both in London, when he accompanied Mr. Hill, even during the sitting of Parliament, and in the neighborhood of Turn Hall, he seized every occasion of trying to do spiritual good. Even at this early period, his labors were not in vain. His biographer says, Though at the time he was by no means perfect in the English language, especially in the pronunciation of it, yet the earnestness with which he spoke, then seldom to be found in English preaching, and the unspeakably tender affection to poor undone sinners, which was felt in his every word and question, drew multitudes of people to hear him, and few went away empty. We can easily understand that Fletcher's views about being ordained now completely changed. Little by little, his doubts, fears, and hesitancy as to his fitness for the ministerial office melted away. Correspondence with John Wesley encouraged him to go forward with the idea of being ordained. Difficulties that seemed likely at one time to put an impassable barrier in his way were unexpectedly removed. A gentleman whom he hardly knew offered him a position that was likely to be soon available. A clergyman, whom he had never even spoken to, offered, of his own will, to support his ordination. Therefore, he was ordained deacon on Sunday, March 6, 1757, and priest on the following Sunday by the Bishop of Bangor in the Chapel Royal at St. James. I am unable to explain how Fletcher got over the difficulty of being a foreigner and of not having earned a university degree. I can only suppose that the influence of the family of the hills, in which he was still tutor, made a bishop of those days ready to ordain him as a literate person. I am also unable to say on what title he was ordained, but putting things together I speculate that he was nominated curate, or assistant, of Madeley, the parish of which he afterward became vicar. 
Judged by the standard of the present day, the whole matter of his ordination seems to have been attended with strange irregularities. But things were strangely managed in the Church of England a hundred years ago. With characteristic energy, Fletcher lost no time in beginning the work of the ministry. The very day that he was ordained priest, he came straight from the Chapel Royal to West Street Chapel and assisted John Wesley in the administration of the Lord's Supper. Throughout the next two months, until Mr. Hill's family left London for Shropshire, Fletcher preached in many London pulpits, both in the English and French languages, as he had opportunity. Laboring in this way, he soon became well known as a fellow laborer of the leading evangelists of the day, and he quickly attained a very good reputation. In May of 1757, he went down into Shropshire with Mr. Hill's family and found comparatively few openings for the exercise of his ministry. In fact, a friend says that he didn't preach more than six times in six months. Undoubtedly, this was partly because his time was occupied with the education of his young pupils, and probably partly because the Shropshire clergy were afraid of him and wouldn't let him into their pulpits. The only churches in which he preached were at Atcham, Roxeter, Madeley, St. Auckman's, and the Abbey Church, Shrewsbury. Whatever the reason, I cannot find that Fletcher had any regular established ministerial work for the first three years after his ordination. From March 1757 to the latter part of 1760, he seems to have retained his position as tutor in Mr. Hill's family, and in that capacity he regularly went to London for part of the year, and was generally in Shropshire for the other. Wherever he was, he appears to have found time for itinerating and preaching a good deal, and it's only natural to suppose that he was not required to devote himself entirely to the superintendence of Mr. Hill's sons. I must confess my inability to trace out Fletcher's history very accurately during the first three years of his ministry. The memoirs of men of that day are so often written with a careless neglect of dates that at this distance of time it's impossible to follow their movements. Sometimes I read of his being at Bristol preaching for John Wesley at Kingswood. Sometimes I find him in London preaching in Lady Huntingdon's parlour. Sometimes he is at Brighton occupying the pulpit of Lady Huntingdon's chapel. Sometimes he is at Tunbridge preaching to French prisoners. Sometimes he is itinerating about the country, appearing in all sorts of strange and unexpected places. The order and reasons of his movements during these three years are matters that I cannot pretend to explain. Only one thing is very clear. He became known as a public supporter of the great religious revival of which Lady Huntington was the mainspring, and he formed lifelong friendships with all its leading agents. It was at about this period of his life that John Fletcher became acquainted with the famous John Berridge of Everton. This took place under such remarkable circumstances that I will give them at length in the words of Lady Huntington's biographer. It appears that he went to Everton Parsonage uninvited and unexpectedly. He introduced himself as a new convert who had taken the liberty to wait on Berridge for the benefit of his instruction and advice. From his accent and manner, the perceptive vicar of Everton perceived at once that he was a foreigner, and inquired from what country he came. I am a Swiss from the canton of Bern, was the reply. From Bern, said Berridge, then you can probably give me some account of a young fellow countryman of yours, a John Fletcher, who has recently preached a few times for Mr. Wesley, and of whose talents, learning, and piety he speaks in high terms. Do you know him? Yes, sir, said Fletcher. 
I know him well, and if the Wesleys knew him as well as I do, they wouldn't speak of him in such terms, for he is more indebted to them for their partial friendship than to his own merits. You surprise me, said Berridge, by speaking so coldly of a fellow countryman in whose praise they are so warm. I have the best reason for speaking as I do, he replied, for I myself am John Fletcher. If you are John Fletcher, said his host, you must do me the favour of taking my pulpit tomorrow, and when we are better acquainted, without simply receiving either your statement or that of your friends, I will be able to judge for myself. Thus began a close friendship between Fletcher and Berridge that no future controversy could ever entirely interrupt. The turning point in Fletcher's ministerial history was his appointment to the parish of Madeley in October 1760. Madeley is a large and unattractive parish near Wellington in Shropshire, now containing between eight and nine thousand inhabitants, employed almost entirely in coal mining and ironworks. There's no reason to think that it was very different in the eighteenth century from what it is now, though the population has probably increased. The circumstances under which he obtained the position were very remarkable, and are well described in his own letters. The first link in the chain of providence that took him to Madeley was the offer of the parish of Dunham in Cheshire by his friend Mr. Hill. He told Fletcher that the parish was small, the duty light, and the income good, four hundred pounds a year then, and that it was situated in a fine sporting country. After thanking Mr. Hill most cordially for his kindness, Fletcher replied, Alas, sir, Dunham will not suit me. There's too much money and too little work. Few clergymen make such objections, said Mr. Hill. It's a pity to give up such a living, and I don't know that I can find you another place. What will we do? Would you like Madeley? That, sir, would be the very place for me. My goal, Mr. Fletcher, is to make you comfortable in your own way. If you prefer Madeley, I will find no difficulty in persuading Chambers, the present vicar, to exchange it for Dunham, which is worth twice as much, and in getting Madeley for you. In this way, as unusual as it seems now, John Fletcher, in October 1760, found himself in the strange position of holding a church office in England and being the vicar of a large parish in Shropshire. He did not go to Madeley without many doubts and reservations. More than a few of his best friends thought the move was of very questionable wisdom. Even now one cannot help imagining that his valuable life would have been longer and his usefulness outside of his parish greatly increased if he had been content with the lighter work and smaller population of Dunham. However, we must not forget that the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Psalm 37, 23. It is place that often draws out grace. For all that we know, Fletcher might have sunk into comparative idleness and obscurity if he had not been planted at Madeley. His letters at this period, however, plainly show that the move was not made without great anxiety and exercise of soul. He wrote to Charles Wesley, My heart revolts at the idea of being at Madeley alone, opposed by my superiors, hated by my neighbors, and despised by all the world. Without piety, without talents, without resolution, how will I repel the assaults and overcome the obstacles that I foresee if I faithfully carry out my duty at Madeley? On the other hand, to reject this presentation, burn the certificate, and leave in the desert these sheep whom the Lord has evidently brought me into the world to feed, appears to me nothing but stubbornness and refined self-love. I will hold a middle course between these extremes. 
I will be completely passive in the steps I must take, and yet active in praying to the Lord to deliver me from the evil one and to conduct me in the way that he would have me go. If you can see anything better, inform me of it soon. At the same time, remember me in all your prayers that if this matter is not of the Lord, the enmity of the Bishop of Lichfield, who must authorize my testimonials, the threats of the Bishop of Hereford's chaplain, who was a witness to my preaching at West Street Chapel, the objections drawn from my not being naturalized, or some other obstacle may prevent the kind intention of Mr. Hill. It is written that when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Proverbs 16, 7. This text was very well illustrated in the matter of Fletcher's appointment to Madeleine. Obstacles that at one time seemed insurmountable melted away in a most extraordinary manner, and almost in spite of himself he was placed into the assignment. In the letter to Lady Huntington, written on October 3, 1760, he said, I seem to be the prisoner of God's providence, who in all probability is going to cast my lot for life among the coal miners and ironworkers of Madeley. The two thousand souls of that parish, for whom I was called into the ministry, are many sheep in the wilderness, which, after all, I cannot sacrifice to my own personal choice. When I was once allowed to work among them for a few days, some began to return to the shepherd of their souls, and I found it in my heart to spend and be spent for them. When I was later sent away from them, that zeal, it is true, cooled to such a degree that I have wished a thousand times that they might never be committed to my charge. However, the impression of the tears of those who, when I left them, ran after me, crying, Who will now show us the way to heaven? never quite wore off from the bottom of my heart, and upon second thoughts I always concluded that if the Lord made my way plain to this church, I could not run away from it without disobeying the order of providence. That time is come. The church position is open, and the offer was brought unasked into my hands. The difficulty of getting proper endorsements, which I looked upon as insurmountable, vanishes at once. The three clergymen who had opposed me with most bitterness signed them. The Bishop of Lichfield endorsed them without the least objection. The Lord of the Manor, my great opponent, left the parish, and the vicar, the very man who told me I would never preach in that church, now recommends me for it and tells me he will induct me himself. Are not these indications of the will of God? On October 28, 1760, he wrote to Lady Huntingdon as follows. Since I had the honor to write last, all the little circumstances of my institution and induction have taken such an easy turn that I question whether any clergyman noted for good fellowship ever got over them with less trouble. I preached last Sunday, for the first time, in my church, and will continue to do so, although I propose staying with Mr. Hill until he leaves the country, partly to remain with him to the end, and partly to avoid falling out with my predecessor, who is still at Madeley, but who will leave about the same time. If I know anything of myself, I will be much more ready to resign my position after I have had a fair trial of my unprofitableness to the people committed to my care than I was to accept it. Mr. John Wesley asks me to do it without a trial. He will have me see the snare of the devil in this appointment to Madeley, and have me run from it at the peril of my soul. I answer that I cannot see it in that light. He says, Others may do well in a parish, you cannot, for it is not your calling. I tell him that I freely acknowledge that I am not qualified either to plant or water any part of the Lord's vineyard, 
but that if I am called at all, I am called to preach at Madalay, where I was first sent into the ministry, and where a chain of providences I could not break has again fastened me. I tell him that although I should be as unsuccessful as Noah before the flood, yet I am determined to try to be to them a preacher of Christ's righteousness, and that despite my universal inability, I am not quite without hope that he who reproved a prophet's madness by the mouth of a donkey may reprove a coal miner's profaneness even by my mouth. The doubts and reluctance with which Fletcher accepted the position of Madeley appear to have clung to him for several months after he began the duties of his parish. Of course, much allowance must be made for the natural ignorance of a young Swiss man about the habits and customs of a neglected mining population in England. However, judging from the three following letters, he seems for some time to have gone through much distress of mind after beginning his residence at Madeley. I make no excuse for inserting these letters at length. On November 19, 1760, he wrote to Lady Huntingdon as follows. I have previously written my sermons, but I am carried so far beyond my notes when in the pulpit that I intend to try preaching with only my sermon outline in my hand next Friday, when I will attempt an evening lecture for the first time. I question whether I will have half a dozen hearers, as the God of a busy world is doubly the God of this part of the world. But I am resolved to try. The weather and the roads are so bad that the way to church is almost impossible. Nevertheless, all the seats were full last Sunday. Some begin to come from the adjacent parishes, and some more, as they say, threaten to come when the season permits. I cannot yet discern any deep work, or indeed anything except what will always accompany condemning man's righteousness and exalting Christ's righteousness. I am referring to a general liking among the poor, and offence and ridicule and opposition among the respectable and rich people. If the Lord would allow the gospel to be planted in this country, my parish seems to be the best centre for the work, as it lies just among the most populous, profane, and ignorant parts. But it is good if, after all, there is any work in my parish. I despair of this when I look at myself, and I fall in with Mr. John Wesley's opinion about me. Yet, sometimes, too, I hope the Lord has not sent me here for nothing, and I beg for strength to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Exodus 14, 13. Nevertheless, I am still fully determined to resign my position after a while if the Lord does not think me worthy to be His instrument. If your ladyship could at any time spare me a minute, I would be glad to know whether you think I would then be at full liberty to do it before God. I abhor the title of a minister for a living's sake. It is death to me. There are three churches in my parish, a Roman Catholic, a Quaker, and a Baptist, and they begin to call the fourth the Methodist one. However, the majority of the inhabitants are simple heathens who seem past all interest in Christ as well as all sense of godliness. I am ready to run after them into their pits and forges, and I only wait for God's providence to show me the way. I often don't know what to do, but the result of it is sweet. I am driven to the Lord, and He comforts, encourages, and teaches me. I sometimes feel that zeal that forced Paul to wish to be accursed for his brethren's sakes, Romans 9, 3, but I want to feel it without interruption. The devil, my friends, and my heart have pushed hard at me to make me fall into worldly cares and creature snares, first by the thought of marrying, 
and then by the offer of several boarders, one of whom offered me sixty pounds a year. But I have been enabled to cry, Nothing but Jesus and the service of His people. And I trust the Lord will keep me in the same mind. On January 16, 1761, he wrote to Lady Huntington again, even in a lower tone and a more depressed frame of mind. I had a secret hope to be the instrument of a work in this part of our church, and I didn't despair of soon becoming a little berridge. Thus warmed with sparks of my own kindling, I looked out to see the rocks broken in pieces and the water flowing out. However, to the great disappointment of my hopes, I am now forced to look within and to see the need I have of being broken and of repenting myself. If my being stationed in this howling wilderness is to answer no public end as to the gospel of Christ, I will not give up the hope that it may answer a private end as to myself in humbling me under a sense of entire unprofitableness. If I preach the gospel ten years here and see no fruit of my labors, in either case I promise to bless God if I can only say from my heart, I am nothing, I have nothing, I can do nothing. As to my parish, all that I yet see in it is nothing but what one may expect from speaking plainly and with some degree of earnestness. Many cry out, He is a Methodist, a downright Methodist. Some of the poorer sort say, No, but he speaks the truth. Some of the best farmers and most respectable tradesmen often talk among themselves, I hear, about getting rid of me as a Methodist or a Baptist, and spread about such stories as your ladyship may guess at without my writing them. My Friday lecture was accepted better than I expected, and I hope to continue it until the congregation leaves me. The number of hearers, then, is larger than that which my predecessor had on Sunday. The number of communicants has increased from thirty to more than a hundred, and a few seem to seek grace in the means. May they do it in sincerity. The last letter that I will quote in this memoir was addressed to Lady Huntington on April 27, 1761. I learn by slow experience that in me dwells no good thing. Romans 7:18. I find that this cannot be learned from man nor by man. It is a lesson that grace alone teaches effectively in the furnace of affliction. I am still learning this, but I think I read it and understand it in a manner quite different from what I did before. Certainly the Saviour speaks as no man ever spoke, and He teaches with authority and not as the scribes. Matthew 7.29. His words are recorded in the heart, while those of men only graze the surface of the understanding. I have met with several trials since God placed me, I will not say into this part of the Lord's vineyard, but into this part of our spiritual Sodom. Nevertheless, they did not work upon me as they should have done. I stood out against them in a kind of self-resolution, supported by human fortitude rather than divine humility, so they did not bring down the pride of nature, but rather increased it. The old man, if he cannot have his own food, will live quietly and comfortably on spiritual food. Yes, he is often pampered by what the natural mind supposes will poison him. I have recently met with a trial that, by God's infinite mercy, has found its way to my heart. Oh, may the wound be deep enough to let in the mind of Jesus! A young woman, a daughter of one of my most sound parishioners, giving place to Satan by pride and impatience, is driven in her convictions into a kind of madness. Before this I could not bear patiently enough 
the reports that went about that I drove people mad. But the fear of having this laid to my charge, backed by such a noticeable example, has thrown me into some agonies of soul. Why God permits these offences to arise has not a little perplexed me. I was once in favour of taking to my heels, and, like a hireling, fleeing at the first approach of the wolf. But thanks to divine grace, I now try to commit to the Lord the keeping of His own work, and I pray for a blind faith in Him who calls light out of darkness. If this trial had not staggered me, I would have great hopes that a few living stones may be gathered here for the temple of the Lord. There is a considerable stir about religion in the neighborhood, and though most people rise up against it, some begin to sincerely inquire what they must do to be saved, and some get a sight of the way. My church is full, notwithstanding the oaths that some of my parishioners have sworn never to hear me preach again. I am unmindfully led into exhorting sometimes in my house and elsewhere. I preach on Sunday morning and Friday evening, and on Sunday evening, after catechizing or preaching to the children, I read one of the homilies or a sermon of Archbishop Usher, insisting on all that confirms what I advanced in the morning, which greatly stops the mouth of those who oppose and resist, until God will turn their hearts. Such were the beginnings of John Fletcher's ministry at Mandalay. His later history would take up far more room than can be given to it in this chapter. How he persevered in his evangelistic work at Mandalay for twenty-five years, how he became the principal of Lady Huntingdon's College at Trevecca, how his health broke down under the abundance of his labors, how he lived on through evil report and good report, how he married, how he died, how he preached, and how he wrote. All these are matters that I will discuss in the next chapter.